There's a, a fellow who listens to our Sunday school, and he says, thank you for praying for us. <laughs> uh, he says, it makes us feel a part of your fellowship. The guy from South Africa who doesn't have a fellowship where he's from, and he listens on the internet. So, greetings from South Africa. So in that regard, let's pray, continue to pray, and pray for, uh, for the dear saints who are scattered around the world, some of whom are, really don't even have a church to go to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the uh, fact that you graciously brought us into the body of Christ, and, and you gave us brothers and sisters who care for us and pray for us, and who reach out to us as we need them. And Lord, we are reminded that there are some who don't have that privilege because of apostasy and the churches they came from or other such factors. And we pray that you would also include them in our fellowship. And we we send our prayers and our love out to the ones who listen in on the Internet. And... Dear Lord, we especially pray that you'd meet their needs, care for them, feed them the pure milk of the word, and Lord, we pray for their well-being. And we pray, Lord, today as we open up your scriptures, that we would have our hearts attuned to the truth, that you would convict us, that you would motivate us, that you would enable us, and that you would graciously help us be conformed more and more to the image of your dear Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Welcome. We are in a very interesting section of Scripture where Paul is explaining his ministry. And I love this. I love this section here. It's, it's the verse we're looking at is 2 Corinthians 4.2. Introduced it last week, but in this passage, Paul is in a, in, the, in a negative, saying what he doesn't do. Okay, but it's very instructive what Paul doesn't do and what he's renounced and what he thinks would be an unworthy thing to be done. And what he is discussing is exactly what happens in all too many cases. But he says in Second Corinthians four two, but we've renounced. The things hidden because of shame. Hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by a manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is a play on this whole idea of being veiled or not veiled. Okay, So uh, that was the theme in chapter 3. And so Paul is saying that the only veiling that's going to happen to the gospel as he preaches it is the veiling that Satan does because of blinding people in his attack against the truth. But it isn't going to be due to anything Paul does because he is with complete openness and complete transparency bringing forth the truth and putting it out there. And so this is a fabulous uh, encouragement to us in our day because we have a situation in our evangelical movement where veiling the truth is almost seen as a great strategic move. And i I got to admit, I just finished reading, uh, finally totally finished John MacArthur's book, The Truth War, 
Uh, last night I, I even read the appendix. <laughs> okay. And uh, what an encouragement. What a fabulous encouragement it is to me to hear uh, Dr. MacArthur's uh, discussion. And basically the entire book is an exposition of the book of Jude, if you've noticed that. Uh, thank you for giving me that book, by the way, Robert. <laughs> and um, he was talking about this as well. And, and, and he was saying that this idea that you have to somehow uh, adulterate, now it says here, not adulterating the Word of God, somehow have to adulterate the Scripture in order to make it look appealing to the unregenerate mind is really an attack against the truth. Okay? And the Bible, yeah, the, the truth of the Gospel actually does offend people. That's, that's the way it's always been, and it's not a new idea. It's always been that way. And so maybe some people that, I don't know what their motives are, but they might think, well, if we can get rid of the offense by making it sound like, you know, the Bible is a sort of like a human wisdom book. If you read this book, it's going to help you be successful. It's going to help you have a better life, and it's going to help you in your business, and it's going to so on. Take that approach. That maybe that would make people uh, attracted to enough to the Bible that they'd come and be willing to listen to other things in there. But as a matter of fact, just the opposite is the truth. The Bible needs to be preached in its own native reality. What it is, it is. And what it says, it says. And by teaching what it says, the, the Bible is not just ideas. It's not a book of ideas only. It's, yeah, there's ideas in the Bible. But it's God's Word. And God's Word goes out with God's Holy Spirit in a powerful way, and it impacts people's lives. And so the more accurately we proclaim what it does say, the more powerful of an impact it will have on lives. Okay? And, and it's far from... Uh, I'm going to talk about this a little bit in my sermon. I, I, I get excited when I preach from Exodus and I find a good sermon in there. <laughs> and I think I found one in this section we're in about the plagues. And it's, it's, it's going to be in that too. Because the interesting thing was that Pharaoh, when he got into trouble and the frogs came into his bedroom, was willing to ask Moses to pray for him. But as soon as he got rid of the frogs... Then he, then he rejected the truth. Now, because Pharaoh said, now I'm giving you a little preview. Pharaoh says, if you get rid of the frogs, then I'll let your people go. All right? And so Moses prayed and the frogs died. And then he wouldn't let the people go. And I, and I think it's a good, uh, it's kind of an indictment of the whole seeker-sensitive understanding. That in other words, if you bring people in and meet their practical need or their felt need, what was Pharaoh's felt need? Frogs, right? They're crawling in his bed. I really don't like frogs in my bed. I'm the pharaoh. I'm the, I'm, I'm the king of the world. And, and, and uh, the other plagues didn't... In fact, the first plague he said he was unconcerned about because he had water in his palace. He didn't care if the Nile turned to blood. It wasn't affecting him. But the frogs, according to the passage, went right into his bedroom. It's the first place they went. <laughs> and so it affected him. And no matter how wealthy he was or how many guards he had, they couldn't do anything about these frogs. And so then as soon as his felt need was met, he, the truth, he just throws it out the window. The truth was, let my people go. He didn't care about that. And so when uh, the purpose-driven book, uh, the first one, the um, 
purpose-driven church says people are not interested in truth because he says polls show that most people don't believe in absolute truth. They're not interested in truth, but they're looking for relief. So the idea was give them what they want, relief, and then later you'll get them to be interested in truth. But it says literally, I couldn't help but think about that when I was reading this passage in Exodus. It says when Pharaoh had relief, then he got a hardened heart. So giving people relief does not change their hard heart. The thing that changes hard hearts is the truth when it pierces into our heart and convicts us. All right, so there. Now you got a preview. Yeah, uh, Brian. That would probably be the explanation for like 9-11 or other tragedies when church numbers go up for a short period that people yeah. are just looking for relief. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think that's another application is a, sort of the foxhole conversion. Um, you know, when, when things get really bad and you think you might die, you get religion. And then when life comes back to normal, you just say, ah, I don't need that. So, see, a true conversion, what, what's the evidence of a true conversion? A truly converted person has a hunger and love for the truth and wants to get more of it. Okay, somebody converted is just, you can't get enough truth. Um, I, when I was a new Christian, it was right after they invented cassette tapes. That shows how old I am. <laughs> okay, cassette tapes, I think, were invented in 1968 or something. I was converted in 1971. And you wouldn't believe how many of those cassette tapes we were willing to buy. This was back when my salary was $2 an hour. Okay, and a cassette tape was selling for three or four dollars. You know, so you had to work two hours to buy a sermon tape, and I bought all kinds of them because I wanted to learn. I wanted to uh, I wanted to understand the faith. Unfortunately, half of them I bought were false doctrine, but <laughs> it took me a while to find that out. But people are like that when they're hungry. When they're converted, they're hungry for the truth. So it says we've renounced hidden things because of shame. Now that that means um, hidden because of shame would mean doing ministry in some secretly shameful way. Uh, what another way of, of of looking at that would be practicing guile, using sort of the slick salesman's technique to try to manipulate people. All right, and and Paul says that he renounced that. So the opposite of hidden things because of shame, which would be practicing guile, is the open manifestation of the truth. And two things he means by that. Number one, he preaches the gospel with full clarity. And number two, he doesn't have a, a life that's shamefully not living up to the gospel. Okay, his own life, Paul's own life is uh, a manifestation that he really does follow Jesus Christ. And he's not secretly trying to make get rich by uh, being in the ministry. He's not got some scam or some scheme going. But he's just simply and forthrightly commending himself by preaching the truth and commending himself to every man's conscience. Three things are not true about Paul's new covenant ministry that we find in this verse. Three things. Number one, it's not cryptic. The word hidden 
in the Greek is the root word from which we get the word cryptic, krypta. It's not cryptic. The Bible's not a secret message book. Have you ever heard, seen that? That's a really bad genre of literature, in my opinion. The secret to, okay, you read a book title. The secret to prayer. Well, if it's a secret, then you didn't get it from the Bible. The Bible's not cryptic. It's not like a secret code book and you have to get the decoder ring. Wasn't there a movie that had that thing about the decoder ring? Christmas Story. I was watching that with my mother, okay? And my mother was born in 1929. And, sorry, Mom, gave that away. Uh, and my, mo- my mother was born in 1929. And in the movie, there's this thing where you have to get these, what is it, Ovaltine? And then you could get the secret decoder ring to decode the message. And, 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 and the, when they got the decoder ring and decoded the message, the message was, by Ovaltine. <laughs> and my mom was watching a movie. She says, I, I did that, but I was a kid. I got one of those rings. I remember that. It was literally true. <laughs> a little before my time. <laughs> so cryptic, uh, krupta, krupta, cryptic. So the three things that are true, not true about Paul's ministry, number one, is not cryptic or secret. It's very open. What it is, it is. Number two, it's not crafty or cunning. Crafty would be uh, using manipulative techniques to um, uh, motivate people. And three, it's not distorting or tampering with anything. Okay? So the three things, it's not, not cryptic, not crafty, crafty, and not... Uh, characterized by distortion. But what it really is, the thing that it is, is phanerosos in the Greek. Phanerosos means openly manifest. What it is, it is. Okay? So, taking Paul's example to be normative, which it is, because Paul says to the Christians, follow my example. So if his example is normative then New Covenant ministry, whoever would be involved with it, us, should follow this example and not be secretive. You know, it's really hard, it's really, really hard to tell people the truth. We went to some pleasant. I I saw an example of this. Um, We were doing an outreach at our old building. We decided to do a winter outreach to see if anybody would come in. Uh, so we did an outreach in the fellowship hall and had signs out on the street and, went, and had gospel workers out trying to bring people in. Well, unfortunately, it was 10 below that night. It was in February. And there were so not too many people wandering the streets. But some did. And as we were doing the outreach and we had the band playing and we were preaching the gospel and, and we had food, these three young ladies came in and sat down. They were college age. And remember Carolyn? The, the evangelist Carolyn Christensen. So Carolyn was there, and those three young ladies sat down and got some food, listened to the music, listened to the preaching, and Carolyn went over to talk to them, and my wife happened to be sitting right behind them, so she heard the whole conversation. 
And Carolyn was telling them about Jesus Christ. It turns out these three young ladies were Jewish. And so they listened to Carolyn and listened to everything she had to say. And then they asked a direct question. They said, then you're telling me that if I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, I'm going to go to hell. And Carolyn says, yes, that's the truth. And the ladies, young ladies said, okay, we have a lot to think about. But, you know, it's hard to answer that. You know what the answer is, but it's, not, it's very hard to say that to somebody. But God bless Carolyn for having the courage to say the true answer. Because it's an obvious implication from what she was saying to them, and that's why they asked the question. So Paul said that he was open, not secret, okay? And not cunning, not crafty, but just manifest. Phaneros, that's a cool world. Word I like phaneros, phanerosis, manifestation of truth. Now the word truth has a definite article, manifestation of the truth, and I think I was mentioning this last week. When you have a definite article with an abstract noun, like you know, what's an abstract noun? Something you can't buy and take home and set on your shelf, but it's a noun. Holiness, righteousness. Truth, they're abstract nouns. Okay? <clears throat> and when you have a definite article in the New Testament with an abstract noun, it generally means that which is uh, from God uh, and has this particular characteristic. The truth would be that which is revealed by God, not just anything is, that is accurate. In other words, it's the truth that dogs have four legs. All right? But when the Bible talks about the truth, it isn't talking about anything that has anything whatsoever that might have the characteristic of being accurate, like dog has four legs, but that which has been revealed by God in Christ. Okay? So what, what's this open manifestation of the truth is uh, declaring the terms of the new covenant, because this is new covenant truth that he's talking about. And so... Uh, having renounced any shameful craftiness, guile, adulteration is, is an interesting idea. Did you know that when you add things to the Bible, you adulterate it as badly as if you subtract things? It's interesting that um, at the very end of the Revelation, it, it has a warning to not do that. Have you ever talked with Mormons? Do you know what they do when you quote this thing in Revelation? Yeah, well, no, they remember where it says, if anybody adds or subtracts and you tell it to a Mormon? Well, they quote one in Deuteronomy that says the same thing. And so then they say, well, if Deuteronomy says if anybody adds or subtracts, they'll be cursed. But obviously the New Testament is an addition to what Moses gave us. So, therefore, you can't take that literally. Um, you know what the answer, Do you want to know the answer to that? I'll give you the answer in case you ever talk to a Mormon. Do you know what the answer is? Deuteronomy 18. Because in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, warned them not listening to the soothsayers or the diviners or the spiritists or anybody else, and he warned not to add or subtract, but he did say this, 
there are terms for true prophets. And he said, God will raise up a prophet like me. And when he does, listen to him. So Moses himself gave a caveat to that idea of not adding and subtracting. When the true prophet comes, he can add because he's speaking for God. And so the true prophet did come, and his name is Jesus Christ, and the true prophet did speak for God. It's the New Testament, and therefore that was a legitimate addition because Moses himself sanctioned it. But at the end of the New Testament, it says... Um, verse 18 of Revelation 22, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take his part from the tree of life. The New Testament does not predict, unlike the Old Testament where it predicts a new prophet to come and speak for God, the New Testament has no prediction that any authoritative prophet would be added to the apostles. It says that our faith is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And it says in Jude that the faith was once for all delivered to the saints. So unlike the Old Covenant where there was an inherent prediction of more to come, the New Testament says it's once for all. So therefore the Book of Mormon is what? Garbage. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a, that's one way to say it. I was going to say false, false, false prophecy claims to speak for God when it does not actually speak for God. Okay, let's look up some cross references. And uh, this is such a fabulous verse. Um, Robert, two Corinthians two seventeen. Dick, two Corinthians eleven four. Joe, Romans one sixteen. Troy. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, and Alice, Ephesians 4, 14. Um, do you want to do one? No, no, no. All the way over here to Linda. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 5. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 5. Two Corinthians two seventeen. For we are not as so many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity... But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Okay. So he says, we're not like many who corrupt the word of God. Uh, one of the things I appreciated about MacArthur's book, The Truth War, is he really emphasized that. They, the, you know, it's, it's just abso- absolutely always wrong to do anything less than understand the true meaning of Scripture and proclaim that. Okay. Now, Paul was saying even in his day, many people corrupted the Word of God. And it would always be wrong to do that. Why? Because we're, we're actually we're being false prophets. To be a prophet is to speak for God. And if you claim that God's Word says what it doesn't say, that's false. Now, boy, there, just think of all the attacks against that principle that we see in our day. One of the attacks, and he talks about it in his book, one of the attacks is this postmodern idea that nobody can know the truth. You know, everybody's opinion is as good as anybody else's opinion, and the worst sin would be to say that he actually knew what the truth was and claimed that somebody else was wrong. MacArthur talks about that. Well, what is that other than an attack about, against the clarity of Scripture? God has spoken, and we can know what it means. Now, does that mean I'm always right? 
I'm not claiming I'm always right, but I'm claiming this, that if I wanted to be a valid pastor and do things that were pleasing to God, I would work as hard as necessary to make sure that I understood every passage that I preached on. That whatever tools are at my disposal, whatever help I had to help me understand it, that I would use that so that as best as possible, I'm really doing the best I can to tell you what the Word of God says. And in so doing, I'm not infallible, so that's why you've got to be a Berean. You've got to search the Scripture for yourself, and if I'm wrong, come and correct me. But the meaning of the Scripture is, is there in the Scripture to be seen and understood. And, and as people have the tools to do so, they can. So that passage says that we shouldn't corrupt the Word. This one says we shouldn't adulterate it. So we shouldn't change what it says, and we shouldn't add to it or manipulate it to make it something other than it is. Now, is that a serious problem when somebody does that? I say it is. And, but it's amazing that most of evangelicalism doesn't believe that anymore. Yes? I know that in evangelism... Um, we're talking about how we can be more accurate in actually proclaiming the uh, gospel. Yes. And one of the things in the past is um, to be more seeker sensitive. You hear the message about, you know, ask Jesus into your heart and life. And that comes um, out of Revelation 3.20, which is actually... Um, not a correct interpretation. No, yes, a rebuke of the Laodicean yeah. church. Yeah. And so really the, the message is you know, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's a little bit more offensive yeah. than the ask Jesus message. That's a very good point. And so as a lot of people have been pointing out recently, that... Um, that is being corrected by some people. For example, Todd Friel talks about it a lot. And it ends up offending evangelicals to find out that their tried and true formula for sharing the gospel really wasn't biblical. And so some people get offended. But I would say this, rather than be offended, and in fact what some have told me was, well, I know people that got saved that way. Okay, I don't discount that because, Brian, uh, Brian you got saved listening to a false teacher, didn't you? Right? Yeah. But because Brian was was truly converted by God's mercy and God's grace, he eventually found out what was the truth and went to that. You didn't just blindly follow the first guy you heard who was Christian. All right? Now, I don't dispute that people are saved in the Methodist Church or the, the Episcopal Church or the Roman Catholic Church because if there's enough light of the gospel, I believe somebody could be saved by reading the Nicene Creed. Do you believe that? Is there enough gospel in the Nicene Creed to convert somebody? Yeah, if they believe it. And so you could be in any church that had the Nicene Creed in the back of their hymnal and be saying, you know, my life is a mess. I, need, I don't know, what, what, what does God really want from me? And flip open and read it and say, well, I think I believe that Jesus really died for my sins. Okay. That being the case doesn't endorse whatever that apostate church is, else is doing. Okay? So on, what's that? Yeah, God used graciously the truth. Now, let's say somebody was out witnessing and says, well, what you need to do is ask Jesus into your heart, which is not a biblical idea. And the person says, 
Well, what do you mean? Who's Jesus? Well, let me tell you who Jesus is. And if they, if, he, if they knew accurately who Jesus was, or let's say they grew up in a Sunday school and they already knew the facts about Jesus. They knew that Jesus was preexistent as God. They knew about the virgin birth. And they knew that he died for sins and that he was raised because they heard it in Sunday school. And then somebody says, ask Jesus in the heart. And in the process of doing what they're told to do, they actually do believe. Okay, and then they're converted. Does that mean that therefore the, the evangelistic tool, ask Jesus into your heart, is biblical? No. It just means that God's very gracious. Okay? So wouldn't we want to do what's most biblical if we know what it is? Okay, Troy. Uh, just a verse in support of this I was reading last night out of Second Timothy. Paul's talking to Timothy. Um, it's 2.15. It says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as workmen, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Yeah, exactly. So we should try to be as accurate as we can, knowing that God... Let, let's just say this. Okay, so somebody could be converted by reading the Nicene Creed in the back of a hymnal in an apostate church. All right? Could happen. But how many more people be converted in a church where the gospel is proclaimed accurately week after week from the pulpit? Okay? So there's no, there's no encouragement because somebody was converted in some bad situation. Certainly that doesn't mean we should go create the bad situation. All right, and like what you said, Troy, we should—we're required to accurately handle the word of truth. So, if somebody asks me the terms of the gospel, and I know exactly what they are, I should say what they are. Uh, uh, Brian, I had uh, the distinct displeasure of watching Joel Osteen last weekend, and uh, I was up late. I was bored, but I watched—I watched his entire sermon, and for 30 minutes, he never mentioned Jesus. Never once. The whole theme was uh, every day is a treasure. And he went on to tell about a dozen different analogies proving that every day is a treasure. But at the end of it, he did say, uh, you know, you need to accept Jesus Christ. You, knew, you do need to repent of sins. And all that I can think of is that, well, how could that possibly work when my question would be, well, who's Jesus and what is a sin? So although he said the words at the end of his sermon... The sermon had nothing to do to reveal it. I, I don't know how anyone could possibly be converted from that sermon. Yeah, there's a presumption that when you say the word Jesus, everybody knows who you're talking about. But you know, the average American just thinks Jesus is a guy who died and a guy who started a religion. Do you think the average American knows the difference between Jesus and Muhammad? Probably not. Okay, so that's why we need to be accurate. Okay, uh, Brian. Back to this 4-2 here, Paul's ministry was actually being attacked. I mean, he was defending his ministry as well, wasn't he? Yes. Because his ministry was being attacked as being false. Yes. And, and you can almost look at today that whoever is, as Paul's ministry was then speaking the truth, as is today ministries that put the truth out, they're going to be at the They're being, oh, absolutely. Even in the 90s when I was in seminary, I remember just citing John MacArthur to one of my professors. And, he, and you know what the answer was? Oh, he's a fundamentalist. You know, yuck, yuck, fundamentalist. And, you know, the real fundamentalists don't like John MacArthur, frankly. 
I mean, the ones who call themselves fundamentalists, because MacArthur uses the New American Standard, so he can't be a fundamentalist. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, first of all, I just appreciate so much that you do take your calling so seriously because, you know, as somebody who just, if you're, say, church shopping, um, and it kind of leads into what he was just explaining, but this new perspective on Paul, which, you know, people can sit in a church where the leaders are teaching the new perspective on Paul, which changes Paul's whole ministry, Mm -hmm. but you don't even realize it. I mean, you could even be reading your Bible at the same time, but you would not realize the subtlety of the message being delivered week after week after week. Yeah, the new perspective on Paul, for those of you who don't know, was, uh, came from a guy named N.T. Wright, and it claims uh, that, just, that the basic idea of individual substitu- justification through the substitutionary atonement is not what Paul thought, taught, but he has some sort of a group redemption idea. But it's just so, it's such a bad reading. Uh, if you just read Romans 3 at the end where he talks about the just, how God is both just and justifier and the propitiation and stuff, it's just sophistry obscuring the gospel. Yes. Bob, you mentioned before the mistake of people asking Christ into their life. Paul reminded us that he's crucified with Christ. And I like to remind people that there's a big difference between asking Jesus into your heart and turning your life over to Him. Amen. Surrendering your life. Amen. Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things we've mentioned, and again, it offends some people, but that's because they haven't been so well taught. The, the, The new version of the Gospel makes man the judge of Christ. Right? In other words, we're going to decide if Christ is acceptable. Okay, so I'm going to look at Christ. I'm going to decide if he's worthy for me to serve him. And, and is that a role reversal? Because the Bible says he's the judge. In John 5, it says all judgments turned over to the Son at the end. Okay, and so the real question is whether I'm acceptable to Christ. Okay, and so once I ponder that question, the, the answer becomes apparent. No, I'm not. Okay, am I acceptable to Christ? No, I'm not. I'm a sinner. Well, then how could I ever be accepted by Christ? And that's the good news of the gospel. He died for sins, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Once for all, as you should put that in there, St. Peter. And then, you, then the light goes on, and you see, then you see, oh, yes, there's no way I'd ever be acceptable to Christ because I'm a sinner, but he did something so that I can be. I don't have to, whether I accept Christ, because I'm past judgment on Christ, isn't the issue. It's what judgment he's going to make of me. Well, let's go on here. 2 Corinthians 11.4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Yeah, and it's an irony. You bear with a beauty. Okay, so there's another spirit, another Jesus, another gospel. Do you think it's possible for spirit beings to come to people under the name of Jesus? <laughs> yeah, Brian, Brian and I talked about that in that radio series that we did. If, if, you, if you haven't heard the series, go to oneplace.com and find our 
series. We, it was really an interesting discussion talking with Brian about his book. But we were talking about people that are going into these altered states of consciousness and contacting spirits. And the spirits might be named Jesus. According, and that's what that pastor said. You accepted, or that passage said. You, you may have accepted another Jesus. So you have to define what Jesus you're talking about. And, uh, and the Jesus the Bible's talking about isn't a spirit being that one encounters, but it's the resurrected Christ who ascended to heaven. And that's why 1 John, the entire book of 1 John, warns about spirits. Because the Jesus that John's talking about, he says, we've seen, we talked to, our hands have handled. This was a bodily, real Jesus. And the docetism says Jesus just seemed to have a body. Because the Gnostic heretics said that the material world is evil. In fact, the material world was created by a, uh, a, a sub-deity, some demiurge. Uh, the, the Old Testament uh, God was a demiurge who created a material world, but the whole thing was a big mistake. Because the evil came because the material world was material, and that's what makes it evil. So therefore, Jesus had to be only a spirit being to not be... Um, part of this wicked world. And so that's docetism. And John said, no, we, we talked to him, we handled him, we touched him, the word of life. And then, it's, and then it says, then he, John goes on to say, any spirit that doesn't confess Jesus Christ come in the flesh is not from God, but is the Antichrist spirit. Well, why Antichristos? Well, what does that mean? Anti can mean either against or replacement. So you have a, if you have a spirit Christ, it could be another Jesus. But if you have the Christ who bodily ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, who has the mark of Calvary, there's only one of those. And you're not going to encounter him when you're in your left brain hemisphere in the alpha state. Okay. <laughs> You, you, you find him in the pages of Scripture. All right. Uh, okay, Romans 1.16, uh, Joe. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Thank you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I think I got that wrong. Isn't it the right brain where you, you get into the into it? <laughs> I, can't, I don't know what side of my brain I'm in. I... I've been accused of being too left brain. I think, yeah, that must be it. The, the left brain is rational and the right brain, is, they say, is uh, intuitive. Okay, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, Troy. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Wow. So Paul says that, first of all, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so Satan doesn't come in a little red suit with a pitchfork. Right? He comes as an angel of light, meaning something good, something desirable, and so on. And his apostles, the false ones, disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. So how are you going to know the difference? Well, then you need to have the biblical means of discernment that we've been talking about. Okay, and then we have Ephesians 4.14. 
As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Yeah, notice that the winds of doctrine are characterized by men with craftiness. Same word used in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2. So the, the craftiness is what causes people to be carried about. And it's amazing sometimes how crafty it really is. If you, if you study theology and just get hands-on practice dealing with material that comes as supposedly good Christian material, but it misleads people, it's amazing how crafty it is. And the only way to recognize it is by continual use of studying of Scripture and finding a true meaning of the text. And the more you do that, if you didn't read Ryan Hobbita's article in our last CIC, it's a very good one. It's talking about how one gains discernment. And it's based in, on Hebrews chapter 5, where it talks about discernment, being able to tell good from evil. And it's an objective process. Because these uh, things that would uh, be crafty or adulterating the word, as we're talking about here, hidden because of shame, they're very good. Uh, people that craft false doctrine are very good at what they do. They're very talented. They're very charming. And they're, they're, uh, they, if they weren't so good, it wouldn't work. N nobody would believe it. So therefore, you have to be careful that you aren't being blown about by winds of doctrine. And uh, so, by God's grace, we'll try to help you have the tools to avoid that possibility. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 5, uh, Linda. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And I should read six. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. That's very, very astute. Uh a cross-reference, I believe. It's saying the same thing. He said that we didn't come with flattering words. All right? So one of, the, one of the crafty ways that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and speaks to the church through false teachers is through, according to Paul, flattery. It, in, and uh, one of the ways you avoid being deceived by flattery is by being very cognizant of the fact that you're a sinner. Right? I, I, I told the story, I wrote about it in an article once, but I got a phone call. It, was, it had to be a long time ago because we were in our old house. I remember where the phone was, and it was in our old house on Princeton, and we moved in 87. But anyhow, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and there was somebody prophesying. All right? And the person prophesying says, Thus saith the Lord, Thou art the great man of God. You are the man that I'm going to use to do marvelous deeds in these times. And it was going on telling me how great I was. And so I knew right away it was a false prophecy. <laughs> I, I assume God doesn't call me on the phone to flatter me, okay? And so 
back then, I didn't understand 1 John 4, 1 as well as I do now. I thought it was just sort of a saying. When I, so, but I used it, and it, it, and it worked anyhow. So I, so I said, hold on, hold on, hold on. So I asked this person prophesying, claiming to be the Holy Spirit, you know, thus saith the Lord. I said, has Jesus come in the flesh? That's what I asked. And the voice on the other side says, she believes that. And I go, wrong answer. <laughs> in other words, it was a spirit. And the spirit talking to me through the person would not confess Jesus came in the flesh, but said that the person he was speaking through believed that. Second person. Now, that was a weird... I mean, I don't think I'm always this weird. I mean, <laughs> you had to have been there back in those days. <laughs> but... uh <laughs> yeah, I know. Dick says, yeah, you are. That was normal. Yeah, Jack was there. That was just kind of an ordinary, everyday occurrence. But um, but if, thankfully, I just took that thing in First John 4, 1. It's all right. No, 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 no. But uh, Linda's verse said that Paul didn't come with flattery. The true gospel doesn't flatter the sinner. The true gospel shows us how far we fall short and how badly we need God's mercy. Yes, uh, Perry. So you'd agree then that it would be very good for all of us to memorize Acts 17.11. Acts 17.11. Tell us what it says. It says, For these, referring to the Bereans, are more noble than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. It's a good one to memorize. <laughs> um, Nicole. Group I was, a little closer. There was a fellowship group I was uh, at a few weeks ago, and there was a woman who shared a story about when she was in a worship service that she saw the spinning ball of light up in the corner of the sanctuary coming closer and closer to her. And when it finally came down to her, she said it was the face of Jesus Christ. And she was very uh, emotional about it and very uh, determined to let everybody know that she believed this was literally the face of Jesus Christ that appeared only to her in this worship service. And the very next thing she said was his eyes were so full of love and he was very handsome. And... A scripture came to my mind from Isaiah 53 that said there's nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And the way she was describing it, it was like she was trying to relay that this spirit in a way was trying to flatter her that it would appear only to her and it was supposedly Jesus Christ. And all it took was one question was asking her, how do you know for sure that that was the face of Jesus Christ? And instantly it just set her off to be defensive and say, I know it was Jesus, and huh. you can't tell me I didn't right. have this experience. Well, this is what, that's just what we were warning about, a spirit Jesus, rather than the one who ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Why does First John 4, 1 through 5, warn about against the spirit Jesus? Because there are many antichrists, it says, that have gone into the world. If Jesus is just a spirit and doesn't have a bodily reality, then there can be many spirits that we encounter that could claim to be Jesus. Right? And those are the false Christs that have gone out into the world. So, 
That's why God is protecting us if we know that. So, good. It's good that you didn't allow that to go by the boards, Nicole, that you challenged it. Um, I wanted to quote, oh. My notes tell me that I have a good quote from my favorite uh, scholar on this, Garland. You know, it's good to have multiple sources. I may mention something about that in my sermon. Um, you know, one way that, that we get misled is when we only uh, use one source, one, one teacher, one system of theology, one scholar, and that's all we do. Because then whatever's wrong with that, I would call that parochialism, then whatever's wrong in that system you can't escape from. Because you won't go outside of your system. And, and I studiously avoid doing it that way. And so when I prepare for teaching, I always use multiple sources, including the, the original Greek and three or four scholarly sources if possible, no less than two. And because I want to know what the issues are. And if there's a dispute over the meaning of a passage, I want to know what the dispute is, how long it's existed. And what are some of the different issues that arise? Okay, now there are, there are people that won't do that because they only follow their little system. And that's not the best way to learn. And so I use multiple sources. Here's one of my sources, a guy named Garland, who has a, a commentary in the New American Commentary series on Second Corinthians. And I found it to be very good. He says this, quote, Those who act honorably, as Paul does, do not need to cloak their deeds in secrecy, but are open to the view of the entire world, Christian and non-Christian. Second, he repudiates all deception. The noun deception translates a Greek word that literally means the readiness to do anything. Pan, -er pan you know where we get the word pan, everything? Panergia. So deception is the readiness to do anything. You know, have you heard the phrase, whatever it takes? That's, that's the word in the Greek for deception. All right? The readiness to do anything, panergia. When used in a bad sense, it applies to someone who is sly, crafty, deceitful, and tricky. Such persons will stoop to any ruse to accomplish their dishonorable purposes, and they usually resort to secret plots and intrigues. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul connects such cunning to Satan who beguiled Eve. Um, the word also occurs in 1 Corinthians 3.19, and uh, where, where he cites Job 5.13, he catches the wives in their craftiness to denounce the foolish wisdom of the world that thinks it can outfox God. Worldly shrewdness offers only fleeting success, will eventually ensnare the clever and their own entangled web of deceit. And so, boy, you read stories in the paper almost every day of some scheme, some Ponzi scheme. Some uh, Did you read one? And often foisted upon Christians in a church. There was one the other day where this, this guy had, it was I think from White Bear, Forest Lake area. I was going to ask... Yeah, I was going to ask Roger. Yeah, did you did you know about that one? You're from Forest Lake. You know some people that got taken. 
There was a guy that had a scheme and he built people out of millions of dollars under the guise of religion. And, and, and he finally got arrested and he had a Ponzi scheme. Do you know what a Ponzi scheme is? It goes back, when, when was Ponzi, like early, early 20th century? There was a guy named Ponzi who, who invented this idea where you'd, you'd create this fake business where you get people to give you money and under the, under the guise that they can get money from somebody below them and they can get some below them. And there's no actual product. All there is is a pyramid with money coming up to the top. Okay? And, and then, the, so you have like, however, let's say you have 15 layers of your pyramid. So the guy at the top gives some money to the next layer of people. And they give a little money to the next layer, but eventually everybody underneath never gets a penny. All their money just goes. They don't get anything. All right? And that's what this guy in Forest Lake had going. He had an investment Ponzi scheme going. And they caught him and threw him in jail. And he was religious. He was like the apostle or something, wasn't he? He was an apostle. So there you go. And a prophet? Oh, he, the guy was an apostle. His wife was a prophet. And his daughter, and they were bilking everybody for their money. All right, so that's what craftiness means according to the Greek. Panergia, a willingness to do anything. And there's, uh, uh, this has gone on for centuries, but it will it, happen again. So be, be aware and be wary. Then uh, I don't have, let's just introduce verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. So the veiling, which is a theme here in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, the veiling should never be done by the preacher. If there's any veil, Satan does enough veiling, he doesn't need our help. Okay, so just, just know this, Satan is at work and he's good at his job. And his, his work is to veil the gospel from the law. In other words, don't let them hear it. Don't let them see it. Don't let them believe it. Why? Because Satan doesn't want to lose his congregation. The, the mass of perdition, as it's called in theology. He doesn't want to lose anybody. He wants them all with him. He wants company. Okay? So he's at work continually blinding people and veiling the gospel any way he possibly can whether to get them not to listen to it or to change the terms of the gospel or anything but the true gospel. He's the enemy of the gospel. Okay? So any of us, any preacher who is crafty or adulterates the word or doesn't forthrightly proclaim the terms of the gospel is actually helping Satan do his job. Now, the thing that struck me when I read MacArthur's book and, and I'm one who's kind of been very active trying to correct false teachings. But after I read MacArthur's book, I think I'm too timid. <laughs> Honestly, I think I'm too, I think I'm too timid. Uh, I would read the book. He says, he says that false teaching is a, is a horrible, horrible thing that is serious. It's more serious than all these... He says, you list, at the end of his book, he says, if you list all the terrible things going on and immorality and, and, and theft and sins and sins and sins that you could list, he says, corrupting the gospel is more serious because you're 
taking away the means by which people can be uh, delivered from the other sins. Okay? And I thought, wow. Uh, I, I guess I haven't been to him. And, he, and him, MacArthur actually talks about how in our present evangelical world, there's a sort of a value system that's been created that, that rewards compromise and punishes the truth. So if you forthrightly tell the truth, you get emails, and, and Brian, I know you get them, and I did them too. They're, they're rebuking us. How dare you correct error? Who do you think you are? Well... I don't think I'm anybody. I think I'm a sinner. But I do believe the truth is still the truth and that people need to be rescued. So uh, it's worth every penny if you uh, buy the book, The Truth War by John MacArthur. And I don't get anything for saying that. All right. <laughs> In fact, I'll even say if you can only afford one book, don't buy mine, buy his. Okay. Well, anyhow, uh, we'll... Uh, the, uh, we're out of time. We're going to be, we're going to study Exodus, and I'm going to preach about the first three plagues: the the, the staff turning into a serpent, and then the, the rivers to blood, the frogs, and the gnats. All right. So we'll see you upstairs. So, uh, yeah. So you should be excited. <laughs>